0: Okay, we're in a sermon series that we started last week in the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1. If you were to write a letter to someone with these words, I'm so mad I could strangle him, you know, you expect your reader to understand that you're speaking metaphorically, don't you? Uh, Should there be a a knock at your door, then open up, it's the police. The reader in that instance would not have done a good job of taking your words the way that you intended them to be taken. And that, frankly, is what kind of kills human communication. It's our inability to understand one another, to take one another's words and run it through the filter of, of listening and, and putting the best possible spin on their words you know, we simply misunderstand or, you know, or we, we take another person's words and twist them in a way that they were never meant. I mean, one of the greatest ways that we can practice the golden rule is simply to listen for understanding. You know, not listen to win an argument, but to listen for understanding. Well, how do we do that at the beginning of the Bible? Sometimes biblical authors, they want to be taken literally. They're they're writing something very literal, uh, and other times they're not, right? They're, they're speaking metaphorically. And this is where, you know, genre and authorial intent come into play. To understand Genesis chapter 1, you have to determine what, what kind of writing is it. Is it prose? Is it poetry? Is it mythology? Is it something else entirely? Like What, what is it that the author is trying to communicate to us? In the days of creation that we're about to read, and I'm only going to read a portion of the creation days because they're long, you'll notice you'll notice this about them. And God said, let there be, and it was so. He saw it was good, and there was evening and morning, you know, day one or the first day. And God said, let there be, and it was so. He saw it was good, and there was evening and morning, you know, the the second day. That's not the way that, say, First Chronicles or First Samuel reads. It's, it's not the, the normal way that we read historical prose, is it? It's, it's patterned. It's repetitive. There's a definite structure. You, you could almost say that it's almost, it, it's almost rhythmic. And so we're, not, we're supposed to notice that. There's a rhythmic pattern. Secondly, we're also supposed to notice that each of the creation days addresses the problem we talked about last week, The problem of verse two, that the the universe in verse two is disordered and it is empty, and and the Hebrew plan words there was tovu v'bohu. It's it's wild and it's 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 a wasteland. And so, what's going to happen in the creation days? In days one, two, and three, God will order the universe by creating separate realms. And so we have up on the screen the realms. Day one is the realm of the light, the darkness, the the day and the night. Day two is the realm of the sky and sea. Day three is the realm of the land and with accompanying plants and trees. So one, two, and three, the realms. Four, five, and six, he fills the realms. So day four, he fills the, the light and the darkness, the day and the night with sun and moon. Day five. He fills the sky with birds. He fills the the sea with fish. Day six, he fills the land, the earth, with animals and humanity. I I can't tell you what an aha moment it was for me, the very first time that I saw this structure in Genesis 1, because day one corresponds to four, day two corresponds to five, day three to six, and the first time I saw it, I was like, how did I miss it (laughs) all along? But But it's absolutely there, and we're, uh, of course, we're supposed to see it. Well, let's read further, beginning in verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, There was an evening and there was a morning, uh, the first day or day one. Uh, Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning, the second day. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. Then God said, "'Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for the seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth.'" And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. And we'll stop there. We'll we'll pray again. Let's pray. We call upon you, Holy Spirit, you who wrote these words, you who were the one there at the beginning of creation, hovering over the waters. Would, would you come, Holy Spirit, come and and pour out your creative power and life into us as we study these these first the first page of the Bible. Um, may we learn from you and may we you know, may we see just how good it is uh, that you have made all things come and speak to us and give us life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the ancient Mesopotamian creation story, you may have read it in high school, you may have read it in college, Enuma Elish. In Enuma, basically the chief god of the Babylonian city, um, uh, the Babylonian pantheon, uh, Marduk. Marduk is engaged in a battle with the goddess Tiamat, and in the battle, he defeats her, and he brings order to the chaos. And that's how, if you go back and read, a lot of the ancient creation stories are framed in that way. It's a cosmic battle between the gods and goddesses. In Numa, Tiamat gives birth to dragons and monsters, and she leads them, those forces, into battle. But Marduk ends up slicing Tiamat in half, And he takes her upper, the upper portion of her body, and that becomes the heavens, and the lower portion of her body, you know, that uses that to create the earth. In a very real respect, Genesis 1 is a rival creation account, because you notice, that's not how this story is at all. No, I mean, there's no cosmic battle, there's no gods against gods, it's just the Lord, you know, Elohim, as he's called, God, speaking life, into chaos, life in, into uh, into um, the disordered realm. And so we go to day one to be in. I don't have a whole lot to say about day one other than simply the fact that he merely speaks and let there be light and, and there's light. It, it it it's his own glorious light. It is his it is his glory. That shines into the universe, because we know that the the sun isn't actually formed until, until day four. So it is God's own glorious light that he speaks, and it fills, and it contains the darkness and the disorder of verse two. And from that, he separates the day from night. Next, we go to day two, and day two is interesting, because in it, we see the separation of the waters, the waters that are above are separated from the waters below, and they're separated by a Hebrew word that in our Bible's translation is, is, in, is translated as expanse. And you say, well, what is going on here? We know what the waters below are, right? The waters below are oceans and lakes and rivers. And then there's this thing called an expanse. And then, And then there are waters above. You say, well, what is that? And, and most likely what it is is it's reflecting an ancient Near Eastern uh, way of viewing the world, a cosmology, where they believed there were heavenly waters above the expanse in the sky. And when the expanse uh, happens to open up a little bit, you know, there's some space up in the expanse, then what happens with the heavenly waters? They, they fall to the earth in the form of rain. Now you say, okay, Brad, but we all know that there is no invisible expanse in the sky. Correct. <laughs> As God oftentimes does, what he's, he's doing, he's, he's accommodating himself to the original readers by using their categories and concepts that would be, you know, familiar to them. You have to recognize, though, that the, the way that they saw the world, it certainly looks like that. I mean, if we were to walk outside right now, I don't know if there's enough space in the green grass behind the sanctuary here, but if you go out and you stand in the middle of a field and you look to the north on a clear sunny day and you trace your head all the way back towards the south and then you look to the east and you do the same all the way back to the west, what it looks like is that there is an invisible dome covering the earth and on the outside of that dome is water. (laughs) Because it's all blue up there. And we know that we know that water comes from the sky. It's, it's how the world looks, doesn't it? And sometimes that's what we do as human beings, is we talk about, we talk as though things were the way they, they look or they seem. I mean, for instance, today we use language like this all the time, don't we? The sun rises in the east. Well, does the sun actually rise? No, but, but we talk as though it does because it looks and seems like it does. I mean, similarly, we know the sun doesn't rise in the east. If somebody came and, and read our literature 4,000 years from now, would they ask the question, those people, did they actually think the sun rises in the east? We asked that same question about the ancient Hebrews. Did they actually believe there was a, an invisible dome expanse above, uh, above holding waters? No, maybe, but not necessarily. One of the reasons, though, that I love to point this out in day two, not only does it capture the way that we see, experience the world, but the fact of the matter is you can spend your whole life reading the Bible and never quite realize that there in the creation story are waters below and there are waters above that are being separated. And he's not talking about water vapor, okay? So it's there. Next, let's go on to day three, and what I would call day three is a a day where we get a bonus act of creation. On day three, you know, God establishes the realm of the land, and you notice that um, the bonus act on day three is not only do we have the land, but He invites the plants and the fruit trees with their seed to emerge out of the land. Now, here's what here's my theory: if the parallels between one and three. I'm sorry, 1 and 4, 2 and 5, 3 and 6. If the parallels hold, then we should sort of expect there to be a bonus act of creation on day 6. And what do we find? There is. Because on day 6, he, what does he do? He creates the animals to fill the land. But at the, at the end of day 6, he creates one new and, and special thing. What does he create? He makes a new and special land creature, namely human or Adam in the Hebrew, um, just as he did uh, in parallel with day three. What about day four? Uh, day four, what stands out to me, is that it's a day with no sun and moon. You say, well, of course there was a sun and moon. Well, not exactly. What's cool about day four is that, yes, he fills the the, the realms of the day and the night with the sun, moon, and stars, But in the Hebrew, I mean, Hebrew has a perfectly normal word for sun and moon. You notice that Moses doesn't use that. He doesn't use the the regular terminology. Instead, he uses these words, the greater light and the lesser light. Why would Moses do that? Well, because Israel's neighbors the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians gave proper names to the sun and the moon. Ra was the name of the Egyptian sun god, Nana the name of the Mesopotamian moon god. Israel's neighbors worshiped those as deities. It's almost as like when Moses is writing the creation account, he he's he's like I don't even dignify the sun and the moon by by calling them an a, a name. Instead, I'm just going to call them the greater light and the lesser light. In that subtle way, the, the creation account combats the polytheism and the nature worship that dominated the ancient world. I don't really have anything for you on days five and six, but we it all cu- culminates on day seven. The, the, day seven is clearly the most important day, and it's important in several different ways. Let's read it in chapter two, verses two and three. <clears throat> On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all of um, his work of creation. God rests on the seventh day. And this has led to questions all along of, well, why did he rest? Was he tired? (laughs) Was was he pooped out? Uh, did, did he just need to to take a break? I mean, how could an omnipotent God who can speak everything into existence it 's not as though he 's um, r- running around and, and feverishly doing all these things. he just speaks it into existence why would why would he need t- to rest? What is going on and the answer is that the rest uh, it expresses his desire to basically stop the work of creating and enter into um, the, 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 the world that he has made to enter into and to dwell in the world that he has made. And that's actually a phrase that is utilized in a number of creation counts. When a God rests, they will then enter into the, the temple that they have created. And it's kind of like this. It's like the whole world that God has made in those six days is a holy temple where he has decided to live there with his people. Another thing that's very, very important about the seventh day, you you probably noticed it immediately, is that there's no longer the phrase, there was evening and morning. There's no longer that that time demarcation. It doesn't appear on the seventh day. Why does it appear on the seventh day? Because the seventh day, in in this storytelling, the seventh day never ends. The seventh day is ongoing. Um, See, in Genesis 1, it is describing God's ideal vision for the whole cosmos, a place where God lives with His partners to rule the world in harmony forever. He comes into this, into the world with us, His image bearers, and that, that day is supposed to continue on forever and ever and ever. He will be with us, and we will be with Him, and that was the goal of all of creation. The seventh day is is so important that, you know, the author of Genesis, Moses, ends up putting seven-day fingerprints on the entire chapter. Did you know this? So, yeah, of course. Seven seven is the, the number of God, the number of perfection, the number of completion. We get it, we get creation in seven days. We have seven Hebrew words in the first sentence of the creation account. Uh, then we have 14 words in the next sentence and possibly the sentence after that, you know, 14 being a multiple of seven. We ha- end up having, through the whole story, 35 Elohims, 35 God. We have 14 heavens and earth being referenced. And then on the seventh day, the, the final culminating seventh day, we have three sentences, each with seven words. And, um, and I think in the middle of those three sentences are the words, and he rested. Why is that important? Other than it's kind of cool, Bible nerdy <laughs> type of stuff. It's important because, you know, us, like you don't read Hebrew. I don't really read Hebrew. We would never, we would never know that unless we were the original readers. That's important. But I, I, the, the very first page of the Bible, I hope you can see this. That God is doing way more than just telling us how the world was made or how long it took for the world to be made. He, this has all been designed to show us God's purpose, which is to share creation with His image bearers, so that we can rest and rule uh, this creation together with Him forever. And that's exactly where the the, the Bible starts. That's what all of the biblical drama, uh, you know, will go on to tell us over the subsequent you know pages and books et cetera. Um, I don't know if you had, had ever seen some of those pieces of framework before. The, most of them were new to me. I mean, I've learned them within the last uh, 10 years. And, um, I, and I love them. I love them not simply because it's kind of cool, but because it's really God's way of, of setting the story uh, for everything that is to follow. Here are a few takeaways from the passage that I want to uh, leave you with. Number one, it, it's obvious that God's word is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing in in its verbal form. He speaks and makes everything good. I mean, because that was he has that benediction on every one of the days, right? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then at the very end, he says, "And it was very good." He he speaks life into existence, and that life is good. And, you know, we get to explore some of those themes in in future weeks about, you know, the goodness of our bodies, the goodness of food, the goodness of drink, the goodness of nature. It's all very, very good, and he has the ability to speak that goodness into life. Um, So that's the, the amazing nature of it in its verbal form. In its written form, it is, it's a masterpiece. I mean, you've got these sevens, the fingerprints of the sevens, the organization, the parallelisms, you know, it's a masterpiece. And if if I could apply it to you, apply it to us in this way, I would just say, I'd say this, that if, if you are in need of life, if you are in need of hope, if you are in need of creativity, it is the word of God that can bring that to you. His word has power. It has that kind of power. It is his word through the power of the Holy Spirit that creates and sustains life. And um, I, I don't know how else to show it to you than to show you uh, that he speaks and that he writes and it's magnificent. If that's the case, why would you want to go a day of your life without his word? I mean, We need his word. We need his word every single day, every day. And his word has that kind of creative life-giving power. Um, I, I just want you to have it, too. Uh, I go back then secondarily to the earlier question we asked. What kind of literature is this? Is it, po- is it prose? Obviously not. Is it, is it poetry? It certainly has a lot of poetic elements to it. Um, it has clearly a rhythm and a structure and repetition. I said it, it almost has a beat to it. I wonder if Genesis 1 might not be some type of song. If you've ever read The Magician's Nephew, see this picture of um, from the Chronicles of Narnia, you may remember that in The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis has a creation account, and he describes the creation of Narnia in this way. He writes, In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It seemed to come from all directions at once, and though there were no words, there was hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison the most beautiful noise anyone had ever heard they looked above them and they saw the blackness was filled with stars and each of each of the stars were singing as well then the wind came rushing in the blackness of the sky turned to a budding gray Hills began to stand up around them. The sky changed to pink and then to a brilliant gold. And as soon as the voice swelled to the mightiest sound it could produce, the sun over the, rose over the hills. And from the sun's light, they could see the source of the singing, a large golden lion standing in the middle of the valley, raising its voice and song. Lewis, Lewis thought that Genesis 1 was a song, and that's why he has Aslan sing all of Narnia into existence. Have you ever thought of it that way before? Have you ever ever thought? We talked last week about the Trinity and how the Trinity is in, in Genesis. Have you ever thought of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like raising their, their voices together, this overflow of love for one another. They begin to sing uh, this this three-person love song, and from it, like everything is created. You know, people go to Sedona because it's absolutely stunning, and they go because they want to experience the the Sedona vortexes, right? They think that there are swirling centers of energy that are conducive to healing and meditation and self-exploration. I don't believe that there are any vortexes, uh, any vortices in Sedona, but I do believe there's something about Sedona. What is it? It just seems like it's a place where you can hear Aslan's song really well. It's the place where you can hear the song of creation, the song of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit singing. And it does something to us, in us, whether whether we're Christian or whether, or even if we're not. It does something. You feel it, don't you? You feel it. That's the first takeaway. Uh, the second one here, uh, it's regarding the age of the earth. Here is pictured the Irish priest, uh, 17th century Irish uh, Catholic priest by the name of James Usher. Usher, not to be confused with a halftime performer, assumed that Jesus was born in zero A.D. and using the genealogies, primarily the genealogies in the Book of Genesis, he was able to count backwards and determine that uh, the creation happened between five and six thousand years before Jesus. You know, so. So it may, that would make um, the, the earth today like seven to eight thousand years old is what Usher assumed because he assumed of course the days of creation were 24 hour days because the word, the Hebrew word yom normally means 24 hour day. And ever since then, there are, are good faithful Christians who believe in a young earth, who believe that, you know, that God made 624, that the genealogies are mostly comprehensive, that the maximum age of the earth A young earth person is going to say it's about 10,000 years old. Now, as you probably can guess from the way that I taught the passage, I don't share that opinion, but I also don't poo-poo that opinion either. I mean, most of, pretty much almost all of my seminary professors, you know, 20 years ago, they were all young earth guys, and they are so much smarter than I am. Um, In my opinion, though, Genesis 1 is agnostic about the age of the earth, like, the earth could be old. The earth could be young. The, the text is clearly not trying to tell us how old it is. It's, it's trying to tell us something else. You have to look somewhere else in order to know its age. Uh, the only thing I would say about an older earth position <laughs> that I hold to is uh, that many of the, of the great Christian thinkers of the past, centuries ago, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, All of them were asking questions of whether or not these were 24 hours, hour periods of time. And they were asking that, you know, hundreds, uh, thousands of years before the invention of modern science. And it's a fair question to ask, isn't it? Given the fact that the sun isn't even made until the fourth day. Uh, Augustine, I'll give him just as an example. Augustine in the fourth century, he couldn't understand why it would take an omnipotent God seven days to complete his creation. And Augustine, probably the the greatest Christian thinker of all time, he, he developed the doctrine of what he called instantaneous creation, that God created everything immediately, and the resulting days that are found in Genesis 1 are metaphorical, a sort of a God's work week as it was being communicated to us. I don't agree with them necessarily, but all that to say, like, it's an open-handed issue, right? Like, the age of the earth, surely it's it should and must be an open-handed issue that good, faithful, devoted Christians can disagree with one another on. The things that really bother me is when I meet somebody who, who says something along the lines of, if you don't believe in 24-hour creation in Genesis 1, uh, then, then how can you, how can you trust any other part of the Bible to be historical? I mean, if that's the case, how can we trust the Gospels to be historical records of Jesus Christ? And I want to say, well, yes, we can trust them for that, uh, to be historical records of, of Christ, because that's what they claim to be. And the real question is, whenever you're reading the Bible, is what is the claim that's being made right here? Is it, is it claiming to be uh, an account, historical count of 24 hours. I don't think that it, it is. The Bible is filled with figurative language. In the Psalms, God is called a rock. In Isaiah, he is called an eagle. Jesus himself calls him, uh, speaks of him being the door, but the cross on which he was crucified is no mere metaphor. You know, it's a real historical event, and it, that's where we have to put. We have to put all of our eggs into that basket. It's the cross and the resurrection on which our faith stands or falls. The third and final takeaway that uh, I'll leave you with, if you came here today and maybe, you know, somebody invited you, maybe, uh, maybe you're exploring Christianity, I just want to say thank you very much for coming. Maybe you did read The Magician's Nephew as a child. You remember that there ended up being two distinct responses to the song of Aslan. You know, there are two distinct reactions to the music. Uncle Andrew and the witch who were there, they, they can't stand the song. They, they try to stop up their ears. They want to run away and bury their heads in the sand and hide in the hole to get as far away from the singing, as far away from the singer as is possible but then there's a second reaction that with each note of the singing lion trees and mountains and animals and rivers and flowers and all sorts of lovely things were bursting forth into existence and those who were present loved the singing so much they said they could remain before it for an eternity listening to it with pleasure forever and ever and and that that i think is the Father's song? That, that's when you experience the Father's song. That you could just stay and listen to it and be before it forever and ever and ever. If you're here today and and you've never heard it before, just ask God to open your ears to hear it, to, to see it. Just say, Lord Jesus, I want to hear you. And He will. And He will. Um, if you're if you're a person who is listening for understanding, um, and you say those words to Jesus. He will, you will hear him and, and he will give you his life. Amen.